Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Let the word go forth. Fool me once. Are you fired up? I'm not a crook. Are you ready to go? Shame on, shame on you. It's Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, hosted by Ben Kissel. Boom, we can't get fooled again. Hey, what's up, everyone? How you doing? Ben Kissel here with you. Marcus Parks is busy today. He's working on the next episode of the last podcast on the left. And I tell you, you don't want to miss this episode. It's going to be intense. Uh, So today, later on in the episode, I have an interview with a fella. He's an author. He authored the book Automating Humanity. Uh, He also was a former consultant for Google. His name is Joe Toscano. And it's, it's going to be absolutely fascinating discussing with him what the future looks like when it comes to technology, how it impacts our life, how it perhaps interferes with our life, how it makes our life better. And of course, on the heels of what's going on right now with Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook, the government is really pressing them at the moment. Perhaps government regulation is coming, of course, in the context uh, or in the uh, given what happened in 2016 regarding the influence of foreign governments and uh, foreign corporations influence on our election. And people didn't know where this information was coming from. So perhaps Facebook will be on the receiving end of some government oversight and some government regulation. Of course, Facebook is absolutely huge. As we all know, I'm not busting any bubbles there. Uh, It's interesting as we talked about in the past, a website that is Facebook that started out as a way for Mark Zuckerberg to meet women because he can't talk to anyone in person has now become a platform for over 2 billion people. That's about a third, just under a third of the people in the world. So Facebook, it is much bigger than Mark Zuckerberg thought it would be. And because of that, Mark Zuckerberg has a hell of a lot more responsibility than just finding hot chicks uh, to interact with. So uh, a little update on what's going on regarding the House. It seems like right now the uh, Democrats have picked up another series of seats. They're at about 233 seats right now with that number looking to climb. And the Republicans are at 198. There's still about four seats to be determined. And as we saw in the Senate, McSally is officially conceded. Cinema has won in Arizona. So that's another big win for the Democrats. 45-51 right now with two independents who caucus with the Democrats. So that's basically 47-51 and two uh, to be determined. So, hey, it might just end up 51-49 after all. But again, what's going on in Florida Who knows what's going to happen? That's an uphill battle, to say the least. Of course, DeSantis uh, going against Gillum in the governor race. That deadline was this week. It was Thursday of this week. That's when they were supposed to have the recount finished. Believe it or not, there was an issue with recounts in Florida. I know. It's absolutely stunning to hear. And then, of course, we have Nelson going against Scott. So who knows if the Democrats will be able to win that recount battle. But even if they don't, uh, it was a positive week uh, for the Democrats, specifically in context of, if you look at, they picked up 300 House seats all across the country. Um, They picked up uh, governorships, as I talked about on last week's episode. And of course, they got the House of Representatives. So a good week overall for the Democratic Party. It does look like Nancy Pelosi has the votes to be the next Speaker of the House. So it seems there's 12 Democrats who have said that they will not support her. But of course, that's not going to be enough to stop her if, uh, you know, if she is uh, throwing her name in the ring uh, to become the next speaker. And of course, she is because that is what she wants. And as I talked about on the last episode, money rules all. And of course, she knows how 
to get it. So I want to talk just briefly before we get to the interview. I want to talk about one positive thing. I know it's hard because we heard so many negative stories this week, specifically about Trump and his trip overseas and, uh, you know, not going to the cemetery in France because it was raining. Can you can you imagine Perhaps Donald Trump has a little gremlin in him, and if he gets wet after midnight, uh, perhaps he will spawn into a series of mini Trumps, so maybe it's good he stays dry. Then he came back here to America, and he failed to participate or decided not to participate in the regular ceremony of Lion of the Wreath, really just dishonoring the individuals who gave their lives for this country. He didn't want to do it because he was sad about the midterms and sad about the press coverage. Uh, he's a very emotional man. Very, very emotional. So he's just kind of held up in the White House right now, watching Fox News. Maybe he's eating a lot of Ben and Jerry's. Not Ben and Jerry's. They're too liberal. I'm not sure what the conservative ice cream is, uh, but I would assume he's eating that by the gallon and just kind of living a depressed existence. Certainly depressed and angry, just judging by his Twitter feed, which is uh, the rantings of a juvenile. So he is he's upset because of what's going on uh, with the Mueller investigation specifically. As I spoke about last week, when it comes to the new attorney general or the current attorney general, Whitaker, the DOJ, despite the fact that there are a lot of people who are questioning the legality of the appointment of Whitaker to become attorney general, the DOJ has said that they will allow it to go forward. Of course, this is going to be tied up for a real long time, and I do not believe it is constitutional for Whitaker to be there. Donald Trump basically, in an interview today with the Daily Caller, said that he liked Whitaker because Whitaker doesn't like Mueller. So there's, you know, there's a little bit of possibility if you want to parse the language that that in itself would be uh, construed as obstruction of justice but of course Donald Trump and his rantings the collage that is a sentence uh, it's it's one of those more abstract things so we'll see what happens with that he has also uh, evidently submitted or will be submitting very soon Donald Trump that is answers to questions from Mueller these are going to be written down and I'm sure heavily edited by lawyers, and we'll see if Mueller thinks that's good enough or does he want to talk to the president regardless. All right. I want to talk about one story that really uh, just, I'm going to say it, it, it got me going. This tragedy last week at a Thousand Oaks where a gunman uh, massacred 12 individuals while they were just trying to have a nice evening out at a country bar drinking some suds and having good conversation has been politicized by uh, Donald Trump and by the NRA. This was one of the most outlandish stories of the week. So following last week's mass shooting in a California bar, again, that killed 12 people, scores of doctors, numerous doctors, again, people on the front lines of gun violence. When we talk about gun violence, we need to talk about doctors' opinions much more than we do in this country because they see the devastation, they see the wounds, they see the lives lost, they have to talk to the parents of the victims, they have, a, they are on the front lines of the battle uh, when it comes to America's gun violence epidemic. And make no mistakes, it's definitely an epidemic. So scores of doctors and other medical professionals have spoken out about the epidemic of American gun violence, describing it as a public health crisis. I don't think there's any other way that you can look at it. We got an opioid epidemic absolutely and we have a gun violence epidemic there's just no other way to look at it now evidently the nra the national rifle association the association that gave over 30 million dollars to republicans a lot of that money funneled from the russians by the way tweeted a response to doctors and medical professionals uh, commenting on again the epidemic of gun violence this is what they said this is what the NRA tweeted in response to the doctors. They said someone should tell self-important anti-gun doctors to stay in their lane. It goes on to say the medical community seems to have consulted no one but themselves. Yeah. What do you who do you want them to consult? A series of janitors or a bus driver? Myself, perhaps. They are doctors. <laughs> that is what the medical community, that is who you would consult. The same way that scientists tend to consult scientists, the same way that mathematicians, they tend to consult mathematicians, the same way that swimmers tend to consult other swimmers when it comes to figuring out what form might be best to increase their speed. So the NRA had the audacity to tell doctors, individuals who uh, are bombarded with bodies 
on a regular basis, 12, 15, 20. You look at what happened in Las Vegas, 58, 200 people injured in that, by the way. Where do those people go? They go to the hospital. And who sees them in the hospital? Doctors. The the audacity of the NRA to tell doctors to stay in their lane when it comes to gun violence. You can't even make this stuff up. Every day I look at the news and I'm like, is not the onion. I just have to remember hashtag not the onion because these headlines that you read seem like they were straight out of a satirical newspaper from the 1990s. So that story just, or this interaction just bothered me to no end because that's how um, stuck up, pompous, arrogant, and quite frankly, for lack of a better verbiage, up their own ass, the NRA is, and they don't represent, by the way, again, I'm not demeaning all gun owners out there. I would love to have a gun. You can't really have one in New York. But the NRA is only 4 million people. The NRA does not even make up the vast, vast majority of gun owners in this country. And the way that they uh, pretend that they are the only message that matters when it comes to gun rights, gun laws, proliferation of arms in this country is absolutely offensive to the rational, reasonable gun owners in this country. That's why we have over 90% of gun owners who approve of background checks, banning the bump stock, a series of rational things that might help save lives, which is the only purpose of the government. Keep us safe and don't do things that actively hurt us. And inaction is also action. So their lack of action when it comes to gun, reasonable gun control, and I don't even like the word, just reasonable gun policy uh, is, in fact, in action that is uh, helping, or at the very least, not um, deterring uh, the amount of loss that we're seeing on a regular basis, the loss of life, of course. And I also want to point out, this is one of the ultimate ironies about uh, the fetishization of guns. And this is the one thing with the NRA. I think it's offensive to, I'm just going to, let's just say the gun has a personality. The NRA telling you that you can do anything you want with a gun. Guns are just fun to have around the house. I was just watching a video, and it was kind of cool, to be honest, where this guy shot through a tree uh, because he saw somebody do it in the video game Halo or Fallout. I think it might have been Fallout. And he's like, let's see if we can do it. And they're used as toys. When I was growing up, we were taught to respect guns because of their power, because of what they can do. The, 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 the fact that they can end a life means that we are supposed to treat them with a level of respect. And that, of course, looks like locking them in a safe, uh, not having them armed, not having them just hanging out on the kitchen table, not being stupid. But what's happening now regarding the NRA, this is a flagrant flouting of the responsibility of gun ownership. Responsible gun owners know how to handle the gun. And when it comes to the NRA, just fetishizing these things like, hey, have you thought about opening up a can of beer with a gun? Here's a video on how to do it. That stuff to me is offensive. And I think that's a irony of all of this gun love that we see from the NRA. And make no bones about it. The NRA is a lobbying group. The NRA is simply there for profit. They don't give a crap about any of the victims that have been shot and killed. And again, that's just the NRA, which is a political movement, not even about gun rights. It's even bigger than that. It is their own, it's their own political ideology, and they know how what politicians to get elected, and there's a lot that goes into it. Rational gun owners, the millions and millions of gun owners in this country who are reasonable, agree that the NRA is completely out of line to tell doctors to stay in their lane regarding gun violence. Okay, now on to a story that's actually good. And you know me, I'm always fair. Uh, this is a good thing, and I don't care what administration, I don't care if it's supported by Republicans or Democrats. When it comes to prison reform, we desperately need it. Right now, our recidivism rates in this country, after three years, around 60% go back to prison, after six years, around 70, and then after nine years, around 80% of people currently incarcerated will be right back behind bars. And of course, that is because they don't get any education, they get no skills training, uh, they're thrown out to the curb when they do end up getting out uh, with really extremely little um, when it comes to help, when it comes to assistance, when it comes to finding a home, they have no money. Oftentimes when you're behind bars, you, you lose contact with your family. So you are thrown out into a world. And if you have been in prison for a length of time, such as 10 years or 20 years, 
you might as well be an alien coming to Earth because technology has changed so much, the the society has changed so much, and just try, just just think about that. Just getting out of prison and then all of a sudden you see a smartphone for the first time. It's got to be simply mind blowing because when you went into prison in let's say 1998, maybe you had a Nokia. I don't even think you probably didn't even have an email address yet. So things uh, are definitely different now than they were. So people need a lot of help. So the name of this act is the First Step Act. Now, what this would do is, uh, this is just it in a nutshell. You can go read the article in the New York Times. This is a bipartisan bill, which uh, I think is absolutely awesome because that is a word bipartisan or bipartisanship that isn't being said very often lately. So it's good that both Republicans and Democrats are getting behind criminal justice reform. Of course, which party is to blame for it? Hey, both of them. You look at what happened in the 80s with the war on drugs, with shutting down of all the mental institutions. Um, I mean, my God, what happened there was horrendous. And then let's fast forward to the early 90s, 1992, 1993, three strikes and you're out under Bill Clinton. You know, the mandatory sentencing, it goes on and on, both sides complicit in the over-incarceration of American citizens. So the first thing that the First Step Act will do, federal judges would have more discretion to bypass mandatory minimums and lighten drug sentences. This is a big deal, lighten drug sentences. And of course, there is a large swath of people currently behind bars in there for non-violent drug offenses. And you know a lot of these judges would like them to have more reasonable sentences, but their hands are tied because of laws, government overreach, by the way, because of laws created on a federal level that don't allow them to think critically and be reasonable when it comes to these arrests. The other thing that would change, sentences would no longer be stacked for first-time offenders charged with federal crimes while in possession of a firearm. So getting rid of the so-called stacking mechanism for first-time offenders would address what some have said is a misinterpretation of the law. Currently, if offenders are caught in possession of or use of a firearm in connection with other federal crimes, such as drug trafficking, their sentence could increase an additional 5 to 25 years. The elimination would affect about 60 offenders a year, according to estimates from the United States Sentencing Commission, based on an analysis of an earlier version of the bill in August. So stacking would be done away with when it comes to possession of a firearm for first-time offenders. Number three, there is a total of six key components to the First Step Act. Judges, this is another component, judges would have more leeway to sidestep mandatory minimums for nonviolent drug offenders. You'll hear this again, drug offenders, nonviolent drug offenders in prison for 20, 25 years, 30 years, really honestly just being a burden, a tax burden on American citizens, learning absolutely nothing, and again, getting out with zero skills, What the hell else are they going to do but turn to a life of crime? Another key component, potentially thousands of drug offenders could have long sentences for crack cocaine offenses shortened. Now, as we saw, when you want to talk about, you know, there's a great documentary. It's been discussed quite a bit, but you really got to continue to watch it. I I watch it every six months or so just to kind of remind myself of what... um, you know, what the 13th Amendment really was. The 13th Amendment, of course, it ended slavery. Uh, But the documentary 13th discusses how the prison system and the end of slavery, how they they run concurrent with one another. And this isn't uh, on accident. The rise of the prison state, the rise of uh, over-incarceration, begins with the end of slavery. And again, that's not an accident. For example, the prison that is literally on the Angola plantation. Uh, These things are not on accident. So 13th, check out that documentary. And we talk about crack cocaine offenses. Of course, in the 1980s, during this so-called war on drugs, which is really a war on the poor. And I'm not, you know, that's just a fact. That's just a fact because the war, people in Wall Street, we're doing a hell of a lot better drugs and a hell of a lot more drugs uh, than, a, than a person in Detroit. But, of course, the war on drugs uh, didn't target them whatsoever. It was, it was uh, urban areas, it was poor areas, and mostly uh, people of color. So when it comes to crack cocaine, it was five times more criminalized, more punished than powder cocaine. 
I wonder why. What's the difference between crack cocaine and cocaine? Hmm, perhaps it's the clientele. So this, I think, is absolutely wonderful. Uh, if we can potentially thousands of drug offenders could have long sentences for crack cocaine offenses shortened because that's what we have to do as well. You know, this is going to affect people immediately here who aren't in prison right now, but we also have to retroactively go in there and see who is in prison for far too long, perhaps a life sentence. If it's a three strikes and you're out for a gram of cocaine or a gram of crack cocaine, there is a lot of work to do on this. Another key component, inmates would have new incentives to maintain good behavior in prison and to avoid reoffending once released. So inmates would be rewarded more for consecutive days of good behavior while incarcerated under a tweaking of how the Federal Bureau of Prisons currently calculates such incentives. The law would also provide new, incentive for, new incentives for inmates to shave time off their sentence. For instance, if an inmate participated in an activity or a program to address Recidivism, that would lead to days off their sentence. More than 75,000 inmates would be eligible for this benefit. Hey guys, Ben Kissel here to remind you that the holidays are just around the corner. And with the holidays comes lots of errands, busy schedules, and long lines, especially at the post office. That's why we use stamps.com. During the hectic holiday season, it saves us time and money. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Post Office right to your doorstep. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. And then the mail carrier picks it up. No trips to the post office required. It couldn't be easier. Print postage anytime, any day. Stamps.com is always open. Stamps.com not only saves you time, it saves you money. Stamps.com helps you print the right amount of postage every time. Never overpay again. And with Stamps.com, you get discounts on postage you can't even get at the post office. With all the time and money you'll save, Stamps.com is easily the best gift you can give yourself this holiday season. I use Stamps.com because getting our merch and packages out quickly and easy is a no-brainer. The less time we spend worrying about getting our mailing done, the more time we have to bring you the shows you love. And right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale without long-term commitments. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Top Hat. That's Stamps.com. Enter Top Hat. Another key component here, and this is the final one, pregnant women in federal custody would no longer be shackled. And that's just a human rights thing. Of course, for years, human rights advocates have argued for better treatment and care of pregnant women while, of pregnant women while they are incarcerated. Uh, there's been numerous examples of this. Uh, they were in labor as their legs were shackled. I mean, my God, that is just disgusting to think about. A woman giving birth in shackles. And then, you know, just what's the psychological damage? I know the baby doesn't know. It's just coming into this earth, uh, coming into this world. But my God, that is just horrible on every level. What is, I mean, what is a pregnant woman going to do if she's giving birth? Does she need to be shackled? Is she, is she running away anytime soon? Like it's, it's not even possible. I mean, my God. So under the new law, corrections officers could no longer restrain pregnant inmates with shackles. So that, again, this is a good piece of legislation. It's the First Step Act. Um, so look into it. Hopefully, Mitch McConnell, hopefully he can push this through. And, uh, you know, again, I don't care what administration does. We need prison reform, and I agree with every one of the six components in the First Step Act. So it seems like we're making some progress which is a strange word to associate with Republicans and Donald Trump. Uh, but we are making some progress when it comes to criminal justice reform. And of course, Democrats, um, I, I applaud them as well for not playing politics with this and not just um, they talk about how they all they do is uh, obstruct and interfere. Uh, we got to get this passed and um, they can everyone should take credit for it. I, I don't give a crap. Um, this is about human lives and about uh, getting this country to what this country was supposed to be, which is the land of the free. I saw that somewhere. So anyway, all right, ladies and gentlemen, now I'm going to interview this guy, Joe Toscano. Now, he is the author of Automating Humanity. So we're going to talk about Facebook. We're going to talk about the Google. And uh, I'm, I'm just quite interested uh, to hear what he has to say. 
All right, joining me now, he is a former Google consultant and author of Automating Humanity. I tell you, you got to get this book. Joe Toscano is with us. Thank you so much for being on the show, Joe. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. I'm excited to talk to you. All right. Well, I'm excited to talk to you. So, okay. So in your book, obviously, we've seen what's going on right now with Facebook. There's been uh, a lot of added scrutiny to Facebook. Of course, a platform, as I talked about earlier in this episode, that was initially designed so Mark Zuckerberg could meet women. And now there's over 2 billion people on it. And of course, its impact on society cannot be understated. And then we also have what's going on. And I don't really want to go too much in the weeds on WikiLeaks, but we have what's going on now um, regarding Roger Stone and Jerome Corsi, one of Roger Stone's little minions, yeah. uh, and of course their interactions with WikiLeaks in 2015 and 2016 leading up uh, to the election. When it comes to your book, um, what yeah. are the four main components that you want to address regarding this brand new world that we find ourselves living in? Yeah, yeah. Um, so the book, the whole point of the book, right, as a consultant, I was overseeing Google's product ecosystem, uh, helping them strategically market the products, make sure they're ready for standards when they come out mm-hmm. to the market, things like that. So I saw a lot of different things. I also had to know what was going on in the competition to keep them on top. Right. Um, so why I wrote this book was, you know, I think there's a lot of great things happening out there, but I also just think there's a lot of things that need to be thought through better, as right. we're now seeing coming out for the past six to eight months, like on fire. Um, so there's four parts to the book. The first is, what the fuck is happening? Right. Um, because there's so much information out there, um, but it's a lot of it's either like super technical and not accessible, um, or it's just spread across the internet into different pieces, and you have to put the mosaic together. Joe, as an interviewer, I got to ask the question: What the fuck is happening? <laughs> yeah, well, um, there's a lot happening, right? Um, some of the biggest issues I like to talk about, I think, is most important to people's lives. One comes into like addictive technologies, right? Mm-hmm. The impact that we're having on society, both mentally and physically. Um, right. We are not paying a fiscal cost anymore. We're definitely paying a cost, right? And those are things that are hard to understand if you don't have visualizations, right. you don't know the intentions or the business model. Uh, another part is the manipulation of news media, information, disinformation. Can we just stay on that point for a second, Joe? When you talk about addiction, because, you know, that's what I had to get off of Twitter for all intents and yeah. purposes, because I found myself yeah. staying up until six o'clock in the morning, neurotic, um, being compulsive when it came when it comes to checking it. Um, what yeah. is the is there a speci- is, is there a specific algorithm that these platforms yeah. use to to continue to give us the pellet like we're the little mouse in the sure. lab is there a, is there a specific algorithm that they use and if so is it possible for them to tweak it so it's not so addictive sure um, is there a specific algorithm maybe not specific to you um, but I mean operant conditioning right basics of psychology you give somebody a reward for doing a certain behavior that they enjoy, they're going right. to probably continue doing that thing. Uh, and they've really hit that on the head hard, and it's just driving something at a mass scale now. Um, can they pull it back? Absolutely, they can pull it back. Mm. If they can build it, they can unbuild it. Right. Um, but there's no financial incentive to do that at this point in history. Right. Uh, I think that's a problem, right? We have to, we have to address. Uh, so that's something I definitely talk about in the book, where you know, there's, there's also a value to free content, right? We have seen more progress in the last 30 years than we've seen in almost all of humanity, right? Right. Um, but we're also seeing more damage as well than we've ever seen before. Mm-hmm. So how do we find those balances? And I right. think uh, that comes in taking that cost into consideration. Where do we pay for things versus where do we just pay for it in our data? And how does that new economy work? It's, it's right. really interesting crux, right? Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to, first of all, what are some of the benefits that you've seen? And second of all, um, what have been some, what's the biggest, what's the largest benefit and what's the largest downside to this modern world that we live in, specifically in regards to social media and the collection of our data, which is really who we are as people. That's what, that's when when we say data, it is who you, you are the data. Yeah. Data is the story of our lives, right? That's really what it is. In psychology language, it's called residual behavior. Mm. Um, It is behavior that has happened, but is not really conscious on your behalf. You don't really know that someone's tracking you, you just do it. So it's honest, it's true, it is you. Um, But if you take the collective of all of us combined, uh, your one timeline may be you, but all of our timelines represent a history of the world, or at least a partial, right? Right. Um, So what's gone well? Well, I mean, we have we actually have a lot of things going well. We have more safety than we've ever had before. Like, for example, big thing that people don't even think about anymore, 
Google Maps lets you get to point A and point B sure. quicker, more efficient, easier, safer than ever before. Um, there's so many of those examples I could bring up. Um, but worst thing, I mean, off the top of my mind, the thing that I'm most concerned about is the automation of jobs and mm-hmm. job loss. Right. Um, that's definitely going to happen. And it's a matter of economics that it happens. Right. So there's no stopping it. Right. But we need to figure this out. We need to deal with it because you can't just force that on society and expect right. people not to fight back. Uh, and, and, and if we don't want to have some kind of major issues there, um, we need to talk about it. You know, it's interesting you bring up uh, automation of jobs. Of course, right now the scapegoat is uh, undocumented workers, which I think is just uh, political nonsense. Yeah. Um, it is obviously automation. Yeah. So what happens when the jobs are inevitably taken over by automation? Do yeah. we have something called a lot of folks now, over 40% of the people in this country are in favor uh-huh. of a universal basic income. And the theory of this is, uh, if companies are going to automate, then we tax all of their, for all intents and purposes, robots, almost as if they're people. We take those tax dollars and we give those back to the now unemployed people of this country. Yeah. But what does that do for morale? Man. And what are your thoughts on on the UBI? You just you just hit the juice in my book. Um, let me pull that back for a second and, and talk about so okay. the loss of jobs, right? Um, First, I don't think all jobs are going to get automated. Okay. Uh, so I think that's the thing. Um, second, you know, the whole, oh, it must be the immigrants and blah, blah, blah. The thing is, um, in terms of approaching this at a larger scale society, we have to understand that that's a legitimate argument to a lot of people because there are a lot of people who are unaware of this world that we're now entering. Right. right. I'm from Nebraska originally. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm, I'm pretty liberal dude, but I also grew up around a lot of people who have no need for the internet or to right. understand it. Mm-hmm. And if you go out into the country, there's no fucking reason to have any idea about what's going on. Right. So when those arguments come out from the media, you can understand why they latch onto that, why they believe it. Because in that world, in their world, it is the truth, right? right. Um, that's why I'm trying to paint this picture of why it is a matter of economics and what's actually happening. Because yes, um, it is automation. We had, we definitely had outsourcing for a long time. That's true. Uh-huh. But what happened was then all those people, all those outsourced workers, were saying, "Hey, we're doing work. We want higher wages now too." So they demanded right. higher wages, and then the, the company said, "No, we got robots. Fuck you. Everyone's right. cut out." Um, now, in terms of a UBI. I'll start off high level. I personally don't want a UBI. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that that's the best solution. And I think a lot of people probably don't. Yeah. Right. Um, if you think about what's happening in job loss, it's more than just the job for some people. Right. I think that's a very Silicon Valley mindset of, mm-hmm. oh, I'm just here for the paycheck. Right. right. Maybe it's not Silicon Valley. Maybe, maybe it's a corporate mindset even. Yeah, time. it is. Yeah. Um, um, but there are a lot of people that work for purpose. And I'll give you an example from the Midwest, okay? Okay. Um, corporate farming started to get automated in the in the 90s, right? Um, there was yep. a huge suicide problem in the yeah. 80s, which then kind of dipped down. Um, but due to this corporate automation wiping farmers out and just the wrath that it's been having on the industry, um, what we've seen recently is that um, the suicide rate in farmers in the Midwest is more than 50% uh, increase from what it was at the peak in the 80s. It's right? devastating. And of course, I mean, if we look Someone's at... Someone's purpose, yeah. Right. I mean, if you look at the 1900s, early 1900s, it was roughly 94% of the jobs were in agriculture, farming, those kinds of things. And yeah. now we're, we've cut that yeah. down to 3%. So, but what yeah. happens then? So I understand because I completely agree working for a purpose. Uh, I would yeah. I would say that, and you're right, the vast majority of Americans, or not the vast, but the majority of Americans are against a UBI, I think, for that exact reason. Is it possible, yeah. though, if automation does end up happening, which, I mean, it's happening, um, that yeah, a UBI happening. could allow people <laughs> then... Uh, it's hard because, of course, there's always strings attached when you take money from the government. And we right. see on a regular basis uh, politicians threatening government shutdowns yeah. for this and the other thing. And then, yeah, hey. Yeah. you got to trust they're going to do the right thing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Trust the government to do the yeah. right thing. I, you know, it's not exactly yeah, a, yeah. a bet that I'm willing to make. But is it possible that right. then those individuals um, <laughs> could have uh, capital to participate in more small businesses, like maybe an Etsy or, I mean, hell, even what we, yeah. what we do with the podcast, I suppose that could be sure. a counter argument that that stimulus. Uh, to a population that is not working might incentivize small uh-huh. business growth. Yeah, there's definitely that argument. Um, and there are places that are doing tests on it. Um, the Y Combinator out in Oakland, there's 
Um, who is it? Uh, Finland is doing something. Italy was trying something. Right. We're running experiments right now. Right. Um, so my my claim on that is a little bit different. Okay. Um, maybe you can call me a capitalist, whatever you want to oh, say. Oh, that's fine. Nothing but, wrong with um, that. I think, yeah, I mean, I think it, uh, like, again, I think people do like to work if they like the work. Um, and, and I don't think that they should be forced out of that. So something that I'm proposing in the book in order to kind of help slow the process of this um, is tax of data collection and processing. Mm. So not just a UBI, right? Like, so one of the biggest issues of tech, we have all these huge companies that are just elusive. All they need is a Wi-Fi connection to operate. Right. right. They're having these regulations where they're like, yeah, we have a lot of talent in the States, but we could operate cheaper if we're in Dublin. So right. let's just be there. Um, let's avoid all these taxes. Or like Amazon, let's move into an Ugh. economy and get all the tax breaks we can and then fuck the workers. Oh, my right? God. Yeah, I, I want to talk to you just uh, – uh, please finish your thought, but I do want to talk to you about Amazon coming to New York because I am devastated uh -huh. by it. But uh, continue your thought. Yeah. Yeah, so um, the thing is, right – if you create a data collection processing tax, now this isn't going to be an easy thing. This is going to take some time and a lot of thought beyond just me coming out of my mouth, right? Um, but it could be something where with automation, what is doing the work? Okay, with robots, it's kind of easy. You can right. see they're doing the labor of physical workers. So you can tax that. It's still going to be a different argument because robots can work four times the amount of work each year. Um, but when you get into software automation, what mm -hmm. the fuck is doing the work? It's just a, a code base, and it's infinitely scalable. It works forever. Right. right? How do you tax that? Um, that's right. where data collection processing, I think, comes in, right? Okay. Because who's training those systems? It's all the people. It's all of us. Every time we interact, every time we feed it data, we are doing work for the companies. The reason right. they've scaled so fast, the reason they're so efficient and powerful is because they've turned billions of workers across the globe into unpaid laborers, right? Okay, mm. now you have the work. Let's tax it. You tax the data collection processing. What that does is it incentivizes anti-monopoly behavior. It says, hey, you can collect all the data you want. You can acquire all the companies you want for their data sets, um, but you're just going to pay higher taxes if you want that. Right. Um, it incentivizes ethical levels of data collection processing. So you can collect all the data you want, but why do you need that? Or so if you don't, then why are you holding it, right? When, when you talk about monopolies, do you, so you think something like the power of Facebook – Two, again, over yeah. 2 billion uh, users, active users. Yeah, yeah. Um, how would uh -huh. this – so you think that Facebook would, would cap or limit the amount of users that they allow on their platform if they had to pay uh, X amount of dollars for each new individual who is then coming onto their platform and giving that data? which, again, is the, the fuel of this entire thing. So that was the third point, right, um, that I hadn't got to. But if you tax data collection processing, you're going to force these companies to figure out a legitimate revenue model that is not just attention-based or investment dollar-based, right. right? Because you have huge corporations that are running on negative, right, in their bank account. They're actually not making yeah. money for years or decades. Can you tell me about this? Right. Because I, I do not understand this. Like, let's just take Netflix, for example. It's my understanding yeah. that they're billions of dollars in debt. It's my understanding that Amazon yeah. doesn't turn a profit. How the hell, yeah. just in my in my brain of just someone who grew up middle class with a truck driver, dad, <laughs> stay-at-home mom, I just always remember yeah. tax day was really difficult, and I remember them being yeah. like, well, we, now we uh, we have a surplus of $3,000 we can spend, which wasn't a lot for a family yeah, of five yeah. after you know all bills are yeah. paid and whatnot. How the hell are sure, these companies yeah. able to constantly run deficits and build a new freaking factory, for example, like Amazon is doing here in New York? Yeah. I don't get it. Yeah, so you want to know why? Uh, it's called investor capital, right? Uh, investor capital is money that is given to companies based on a story that they tell. Right. Mm. It's a hope for the future. Um, the thing is, what that allows is like Amazon, for example. Well, I think Amazon might be an easier to understand example because they exist in the physical world in many ways. Right. Um, let's let's think of this. OK. Amazon last year bought Whole Foods. Mm -hmm. right? We all saw that. Right. Um, what they did is they bought 460 locations in the target demographic of their audience. Right. So they are already like, boom, we're in. Right. As opposed to like traditional stores that might have had to build a store, fund it, work, then open other stores as they build capital. Amazon right. did it inverse. They didn't own anything. They sucked up a bunch of money and or got a ton of investment cash. They said, fuck it, we're just going to buy them. And we right. got it now. Okay. Then they're running Amazon Go stores. 
right, to test out getting rid of employees for the most part. Um, what happens when they install those at scale? It's going to cut out the cost to the store either from their bottom line or from their worker's pocket. And right. either, either way, that's not sustainable. They squeeze out businesses, right? right? Um, they've also, they're also doing their own logistics with uh, shipping, cargo ships, uh, planes, all that stuff. And they have patents for automated roadways, how they can do automated deliveries that way. What right. they're going to do is create an automated subscription model to the basic needs of our lives. Why investors are tossing ass loads of cash at that is because then they own the marketplace, Right, they will strangle out everyone else. Right, if they are allowed to, just like they did the publishing industry. Right, right, absolutely. I mean, publishing is—they've already done. done it. They can say to PR all they want. Oh yeah, we're not doing that. We're not building a logistics company. We're not going to take over USPS. We're not until it's done. Then they're like, yeah, we did. Right. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission-free. Robinhood wants to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. That's why they made their service an easy-to-digest and non-intimidating way for stock market newcomers to invest for the first time with true confidence. Robinhood gave me some stocks to try out their website and mobile app, and I'm very impressed. Their design is simple and intuitive, and it was super easy to find and understand charts and market data. I loved being able to learn about investing as I built my portfolio, and Robinhood made it easy to set up my personalized news feed to discover new stocks and track companies I'm interested in. I also liked the custom notifications you can set up. It made it easy for me to track price movements, so no matter where I am, I'm always ready to invest at just the right time. Another great thing about Robinhood is they have no commission fees. Other, more traditional brokerages with brick-and-mortar storefronts charge up to $10 for every trade, but not Robinhood. Trade stocks and keep all your profits. Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. Sign up at tophat.robinhood.com. That's tophat.robinhood.com. How are these monopolies just allowed to flourish so well? How are they allowed to just run roughshod all over this country? I mean, it killed radio with what Clear Channel did. What's going on with regards to policy? Yeah. Do you have any insight into that? I mean, well, you got to, I mean, from a business perspective, right? From an investor's perspective, it's brilliant business. It really is, right? right. That's why they're tossing cash. They toss cash, it turns into a hundredfold or whatever it is, you know? Um, from a regulations perspective, there. do you know much about antitrust law? A little bit. I'm not an expert, um, but I'm sure that you can inform me more. Yeah. So, again, I'm not a lawyer either, but I've done a lot of reading into this in order to make this book happen. Uh, a lot of research, talking to a lot of people. There's three main pillars to antitrust law, right? Mm. One is price. One is um, the destruction of the marketplace. And the other is free trade of goods. Those okay. are the three pillars. Um if, if you are eliminating free trade of goods and you are destroying a marketplace, but you are lowering the prices, historically we found that regulators will allow it to slide. They, mm. they, they generally say, well, price is what's best for the consumers. So the reason why it's run so rampant is because these companies have lowered the price essentially to zero in many right. ways, right? Um, but like we just talked about, we have a new attention marketplace. That's what they've created. They're not running on fiscal capital like we used to. Right. They're running on their scale of human workers and human minds. So we have to re-understand what this law really means, right? Price mm. is not the fiscal price anymore. It's attention. So if you think about their mm. business model, right? Like let's sit back and figure out the big crux of this, which is price. Mm -hmm. Their business models are to get more attention, which then through engagement turns into data, which then they turn into money. Okay. Mm. Now, the way that the way that marketplace is operating right now, attention is an illegitimate and corrupted currency. Okay. It's not like oil that we trade at 275 a gallon, right? It's not like a $20 bill I can hand to anyone has an equal value. They set the value on what attention or data is worth. Okay. And they manipulate it to the best of their bottom line because they own that data. So they have this illegitimate currency. They're turning into legitimate business model, rushing it through a legitimate business model, right, mm -hmm. of data brokering and product creation, and then turning it into legitimate cash. In that mindset, it's not so different than money laundering. Inter so just in my, in my layman's uh, understanding of this, 
So the price, yeah. the tangible price, let's just say of a loaf of bread, let's just say it's gone down yeah. to to a dollar and fifty cents. But the human yeah. cost of that is actually far higher once you take into account mm-hmm. the data collection and once you take into account uh, that they're making money off of the engagement with you as a person, not you just purchasing this product. Sure. Let me let me make it a little bit more tangible. Um, like. Amazon's data, for example, uh, Amazon runs Amazon Basics, right? Amazon owns its own product services. So with data, what can they do with data? Right. Okay. Data, they own the marketplace. They see, hmm, it sound, it looks like we're selling 200 million envelopes every year. We could produce those envelopes for cheaper. And hmm, we run the logistics company and the marketplace, so we could also do that cheaper. Let's just see how everyone's operating. Let's watch them for a couple years. Let's see what their price points are, how they're marketing it, all that. And then we'll just make the ideal based on all the data that we own from you creating it. Right. Then right? they wipe out the envelope industry because they own that market. Okay. So that's a, that's an example of how okay. leading data can lead into more control of the marketplace. Sure. Okay. Um, but then now, now let's move beyond this whole money laundering because I'm not trying to point a crime at them. I think they've actually just created a new marketplace, but I'm just, you know, trying to let people understand that there's danger, right. To, to look into it. Sure. Sure. Of course. Um, the, the next point though is right. We all know that they are creating addictive services. Why do you create an addiction? You create an addiction to get more engagement, AKA you're trying to raise the attentional cost. Now, we talked about the prices, right? We used to have fiscal prices. They've lowered it to zero. Now they're operating on the attention marketplace. And when they create addictive services, they're actively and intentionally raising that attention price as high as possible. Hmm. They are trying to skyrocket that attention cost. So going back to monopoly law, in terms of price gouging, they are actively and intentionally price gouging in the new marketplace that they have created and regulators are incapable of understanding. That's why they're getting away with it. Okay, so they are price gouging who we are as people, basically. The data, we create the data, and and how does that, yep. can you give a, a just a clearer, like what's a real world representation of, of that point um just so we can try impact that price yeah like that price because you think about price you think about a sticker on a package and 9.99 or something like that can you can you just explain that a little bit because it's it's just such a i mean i understand uh to some degree why the government is it's abstract and i understand the government's a clunky titanic uh and now all of a sudden they're just being hit with these speedboats just passing them left and right and they don't know what the hell to do yeah yeah yeah, like the government, like everyone shits on the government and, and they do have their problems, but we have to understand like they are smart people. They were put in office for a reason, most, mostly, mostly. Sometimes, okay. sometimes not, um, but yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, we're just going to, like, what is a blanket statement for like, years? It, it, in, in theory, right? We're going to assume they, they know the Yes. <laughs> yes. They know the laws generally, okay? Um, yes, exactly. They're moving faster than ever before. It is a new world. They know the old world and we need regulators for the new world. Um, what are some of the impacts? Yeah. So three three pillars here, right? What price are we paying? Um, three pillars I list is um, physical deformities. We're starting to see postural deformities mm. in people, not just, right? It's called uh, Dowager's hump, and it used to be found only in old women with osteoporosis. Hmm. Now it's being found in children, in wow. children, like commonly. What that is is because you spend your time bent over looking at a device, your body sends calcium to that area to try to reduce the inflammation. Wow. If you don't change anything, it calcifies the area and you forever have a hump on your neck and you're bent over. We're literally seeing postural deformities. That reminds me of, I think it's more of a joke shirt, but it's like the evolution of man is it, and then we have man finally standing it's, and then the final yeah. piece is man hunched over a computer. It's not a joke. It's real now. Okay. Uh, science is backing that. Um, you're seeing sleep disorders, right? Sleep disorders in a sense where when you're staring at your device, whether that's your phone, your computer, your TV, whatever, um, you're getting blue light emitted to you, um, which is then reducing your melatonin release in your body. Mm. So it's throwing off your circadian rhythm and not allowing you to sleep. And so what's going on there is that people are having sleep disorders. We've seen sleep disorders increase like crazy. They weren't even a problem with the Mayo Clinic for a long time. And in 2015, they became the number two issue. Wow. That's insane. Yeah. Okay. Um, third, third point, you're seeing incredible increases in loss of purpose, loneliness, depression, detachment, all these things. Hmm. Right? Science bases all these things. And when you combine that, 
right? You have these people who are partially, uh, they're, they're in pain, quite literally, that causes pain, right? right. Um, they are losing, losing sleep, which is linked to a lot of different mental disorders. Sure. They are having increased depression, all these other mental disorders. You combine that, you have a society of people who is mentally ill and in physical pain. There's no wonder why we're so upset. Interesting. So isn't that one of the ultimate ironies of social media? is that it has made people feel less connected than ever before. Right, yeah. We're, we're in our devices so much that we don't pay attention to the world around us. Right. Um, and I think with technology, there is an opportunity to get away from that, right? There's actually great ways that we can get people away from screens, but there's no fiscal reason to do that right now. Right. So they're not going to budge. That's the problem, right? Well, what would be... So, Joe, and again, the name of Joe's book, Automating Humanity, I highly recommend you go out and buy this. I mean, this is just fascinating. So let's just sort of pivot a little bit because it sounds kind of dire, a little bit sad in many ways. Yeah, what yeah, are, yeah. How is yeah. there a way, because of course in this capitalist society, this late stage capitalism yeah. that we're in, I, when I say I'm a capitalist, I am, but I also believe in rational responsibility um, and we have sure. to uh, put people yeah. first. Um, what is a yeah. way to structure this in a so that these businesses can continue to turn profit, but they don't yeah. put our health at risk. Sure, sure. Um, well, I think one of the biggest is going to be driving consumer demand, right? That's what I'm really trying to do here. Um, I'm not out to make tons of money off this book. That is not my goal. You don't make money off making books anymore. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to help people understand the inside, you know, in a declassified way um, to say, hey, here's what you you're upset here's the words you need to use to demand more of these companies, right? Um, because it's something like you said multiple times throughout this talk, like people just don't even know what to say or how to think about it. They have no context. Right. And that's okay. They're not dumb, right? It's like I tell people in the Valley, you know, if you go to the Midwest, yeah, they ask for experts when it comes to computer problems. But you in the Valley, you ask for experts when you need to change your tire, right? Exactly. They're not dumb. It's just a different, different way of life. So I'm trying to, you know, Growing up, I was a huge nerd in school. I was always bullied. Um, everyone cheated off my tests. I'm just giving you the notes, man. I'm right. just giving people the notes. And here's how you can understand it. Here's what you need to ask your politicians. And as politicians, here's the questions you need to start asking these companies. Right? I'm not pointing at any crimes directly. but Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you as someone who cheated uh, regularly in school off my friend Charlie, who was much smarter than me. Uh, thank you for what you do. Yeah. I'm sure you helped a lot of people get through high school uh, and middle school yeah, yeah. and probably yeah. college as well. What what question, yeah. what is a, a one question or a series of questions, what question should these yeah. politicians be asking? As you watch this, what's sure, going on with sure. Zuckerberg talking to Congress, all this stuff, sure. what questions did, did you not hear where you're like, you're totally missing the mark? Ask this question. Yeah. So there's a lot, but I'm going to give you one that I think is going to just like kind of blow mine in a, in a small sense that gets really overwhelming. Okay. So <clears throat> when you make a call on Facebook messenger right now and you hang up, um, it gives you a feedback rating system. It says, can you give us feedback on how the call was? And it's five stars, right? Uh, the options are poor, fair, good, very good, or excellent. Okay. Um, and just stating that, do you, do you see the problem there at all? No, I don't. Okay. So, and most people don't, I even put it up on screen. I lay it out and people are like, Oh, all the stars look the same. Or like, there's only five options. Like, right. No, no, no. The problem is it goes poor, fair, good, very good, and then excellent. Right. There are four options that are not bad. Right, right. right. So okay. What they're doing in asking a question that way is they're skewing the data to their business's interest, right? If Zuckerberg mm. had to go to Congress and Congress says, hey, do people like the messenger experience? Zuckerberg could legally and honestly say at least 80% of people think it's fair or better. Right. right. Now, that's a problem. This is something I can't talk about publicly, right? But the thing is, if that is a public-facing question, we need to begin to ask what questions were asked internally that led to that getting released publicly. Right. Yeah. That's that is that's absolutely fascinating. So the data, uh, like when Zuckerberg, as you just mentioned, talks about this stuff, it's not that he's lying. It's mm -hmm. that the entire sample, the all of the data is it's just framed could in a skewed. way. Yeah, it can be skewed. Could be skewed. Mm -hmm. It could be. We don't know. We don't have access to it. So a question a politician could ask him is, 
I, I suppose could they change their star program or how, you know how you how you rate it or how you gauge it? Is that something that the government yeah. what might when we talk about regulations uh, spe- specifically sure. when it comes to Facebook, it looks more and more likely that there will be some regulation, which I am fine with as long yeah. as it makes sense and yeah. it's not just some stupid yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. So would you like Absolutely. to see them? So that that could be something tangible uh, that they could mm-hmm. change to get more accurate feelings about their product. Yeah, yeah. So uh, again, I don't know that the government's going to be the ones to lay down that law and to implement it uh, because you know the government's kind of lost. But I think that what we need is we need the government to say, okay, it's time that we implement some auditors. We find some people who are technical enough to understand these systems and to go in and search them out and give the public a thumbs up. That's what I'm trying to do um, with designgood.tech, my nonprofit, right, to complement to the book uh, with real-time information and solutions. Um, long-term, I'm trying to hopefully turn this into a design auditing organization. I can go in, and my team could go in, audit the design patterns, make sure there's nothing manipulative or addictive going on. Um, I can see what data points they're collecting, how it's being used, and then I can give the public a thumbs up on what's good and what's not. Right. Uh, and also what I'm trying to do with it is um, create some social responsibility. So what I would do, what I'm working with or trying to work with is I could go in these companies and after I do this audit, I can create a plan with them to say, hey, understandable, you're in a, you're in a crux right now. You need to fix it. It's not going to happen immediately. But let's set a two, three, five-year plan, whatever that is, and then let me post publicly what I can post so the public can see, okay, these are the issues that Facebook agreed are wrong right? or whoever the company is, right? Um, this is the steps they're going to take to get the problem solved, and this is the timeline, right? Just something like that, something the public can come to the site and be like, okay, changes are coming, right? Right. Because um, right now it's it's all internal, and um, we've let that go for a long time, right. and it created a lot of innovation, and there's a lot of good that has been created. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're just at the point where we need external auditors, people who right. come in who um, don't have the internal pressures of trying to get a raise, um, people who aren't, you know, focused on moving the budget, you know, billions of dollars, which is, for lack of better words, modern diplomacy, right? Right. Um, we need we need independent people that know the shit enough to speak up and to help the public, help the government, help us all out, right? You know? um, because Absolutely. we don't want it to get too strict. We don't want it to get too strictly regulated. Of course, absolutely not. Like, right. And then we'll push innovation out of our country. Yep. We will stifle ourselves economically. We don't want that. Exactly. You know, I'm not a regulate the shit out of them, but the, there are certain things we can do um, that will change this greatly. Awesome, man. Yeah. Well, thank you so much yeah. uh, for being on the show, Joe. I, I mean, I have a lot more. Yeah. We could we could talk further, but perhaps we should just have you back yeah. on a little bit later to talk about what's going on. We should just follow this Facebook situation and what's happening, you know, yeah. with, with Twitter and all this stuff. I mean, it's it's just total madness. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and I'm getting so much stuff right now because the book's launching, all this stuff's happening, so I need to take some time to catch up on the news, the more immediate news, because um, the book just launched last week. Um, so awesome. that's really exciting. But, yeah, I would love to come back on, and we can do more recent updates and get more into the weeds of things. And, um, yeah, man, keep me in touch and let me know. Absolutely. That is Joe Toscano, author of Automating Humanity. Go out there and get this book. I mean, it is just, it's strange, you know, when we think about like the movie, The Matrix, and we think about how it's like everyone was just feeding off, their energy was feeding off of tangible babies in utero. But I mean, in reality, it's kind of like that. We're not obviously in, um, uh, you know, in utero, but uh, it it does seem like we're all just sort of feeding this massive beast. We're the batteries. Yeah. Yeah. You know, right now it it feels bad. Um, It's not as bad as we make it out to be. It is bad, but... um, the reason I'm doing it is I think we have plenty of hope, and I think there is positive yeah. to come out of this. Awesome. We just need to start moving, you know. Yes, so, absolutely. Yeah. It's a whole new world. Let's do it. All right, Joe Toscano, thank you so much for being on the show, brother. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, there it was, Joe Toscano. I mean, that the guy, the guy is very smart. So I hope you enjoyed the interview. Automated Humanity is the name of his book. Go out there and get it. Help out these authors who are trying to... Um, you know, spread spread information and not just uh, not just a bunch of nonsense. Really interesting stuff. Thank you all so much for listening to today's episode. You can find me on Instagram at BenKissel1. My DMs are open. DM me your thoughts. Again, I don't really use Twitter anymore. It's nonsensical. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. Hail yourselves. We'll talk to you soon. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? 
Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost.